Hello, and thank you for joining our Philosophy Club, where lifelong friends discuss life's big questions and small questions. All questions, really. Let's dive in. All right, Ben, let's do it. All right, so the, the backdrop for this topic, the topic is basically what is the purpose of education? We educate people for minimum of roughly the first 18 years of their lives with an additional four plus. And this is based on a couple of articles I read. One is by Adam Mastriani called You Will Forget Most of What You Learn. And the other is by someone called Andy Matushak called Books Don't Work. And the basic idea of it is we are now all roughly five years out of undergrad education. You know, Michael, you're now back in school. If I were to ask you all what percentage of what you learned in your college, high school, middle school, what percentage of the information that you learned in school now, five years out, what would you guess? Okay, so it helps a little bit that this is a philosophy podcast and I my undergrad major was philosophy. Um, <laughs> that helps a bit. Um, but in terms of like facts, maybe 25%. Um, and particularly if we look far enough back to like even high school stuff. Um, but in terms of like certain skill sets, I would say those come up a lot more often. Yeah. What kind of skill sets do you think those are? Well, so in terms of philosophy, like the reasoning and stuff, I think, um, and yeah, like maybe logical processing and reasoning. Also, it does help being in, in law school that those things kind of come up again. Um, and then like also took some film classes in, in undergrad that I think genuinely made me better at like watching movies and being able to get more out of them. Uh, I would say the same is true of English classes I took both in high school and in college. Um, like I haven't used math beyond algebra probably in a long time, um, or science really, uh, history probably also less so unless it's specifically like the history of philosophy to some extent. Um, but a lot of those like language arts and critical thinking skills, I think I use very, very regularly. Katie, Akeem? Um, I think I remember like 90% of the stuff I learned in like my major classes or more. Um, and then I remember like, I don't know if it's like, I remember the way certain classes taught me to think. I don't necessarily remember like just pure rote memorization of like facts from like environmental science, but I do remember like the way it taught me to look at like the landscape and from like, you know, and certain engineering classes taught me to understand, like look at things with an engineering mindset. So I guess, I guess, yeah, I didn't take away from those classes. I don't remember too much back, um, from my literature classes, philosophy classes I do, but, um, yeah, I guess that's my answer. Yeah, it's that Michael said 25 because I think my exact gut reaction was 30, like max. Um, I feel like, yeah, as an English major, I remember there would be like whole books that I read. I could not tell you one single plot point, but I, I very distinctly remember thinking like, 
at maybe two years in, just thinking like, I did not know how to think two years ago. Like, I feel like I just approach things on such a more like shallow and de-surface level. It, both in terms of like literally just reading, um, but also kind of in general. And like the way that I started to connect in things in my life or yeah, definitely changed the way I think. And I can really dramatically could tell the difference, even kind of like while it was happening, there would be moments where I was like, how did I not see that like these things are related or how this all works together? Um, but yeah, 30% is max, I think. Ben, what is your answer? So I'm also in a field that uses a lot of my major. So again, major classes, most of the important things, but also this is another fun exercise is if I were to ask you, like, list all the classes you took in college, how many could you do? And I certainly could not tell you every class I took in college. So if I can't even remember what class I took, I certainly don't remember most of the knowledge from that class. Well, that's actually... true. I think it's also fair to say, like, if I look back on, if I look much farther back, I don't know that I can remember most of the specific facts that I learned in, like, third grade social studies, but I know for sure I wouldn't have been able to pass like my senior year of high school government class without those facts. And I know even more for a fact that I would be much more lost in law school now had I not passed that senior level government class. So like there's like to some extent education is like a web of information that all builds on itself. And even if I don't remember certain fringe things, I have plenty of other information that's built on other stuff that I may not remember specifically. Okay, that's a good point. So one of the core parts of the thesis of these two articles, and you all touched on this a little bit, is the idea that while education actually isn't about facts, it is about, kind of as Katie was talking about, learning how to learn. But if that's true, so do you all think maybe that there's some truth to that? Definitely. Yeah. Okay, if that's true, and, and Katie, since you're the one that brought this up, did any of your classes explicitly teach you how to learn or did you just pick up those skills as an emergent property of taking these classes? I feel like Michael has a clear advantage on this one. I feel like as a philosophy major, that's kind of like, there have, to have been pretty much, here's how to learn how to, you, you took logic 101, right? That's like, here's how to think. Here's how okay, to like, that's not, that's actually, that's not. That's really not the way that those classes go either. I, would, I was going to say, no, I, I think I disagree. Um, oh, really? Even the philosophy classes. Like, I mean, most of you guys probably took at least like a philosophy 101 level class um, where they're just like, here's what Plato thought. Here's the cave. Like, da 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 and then, and then like a professor will be like, what do we think about this? And then usually in those huge lecture level classes, like there's just a couple of like wise ass know-it-alls who speak up and like make an ass of themselves. Um, yeah, don't say, you, doing? you know, me here. I That was me sometimes. So. <laughs> But like, uh, yeah, and it, it's not until like this, when the major starts dwindling down, you get to the major specific higher level classes, at least in philosophy, that you start to, um, that you start to like really like one-on-one, -on -one, like engaging in the dialogue more, more like in, you've got a smaller group and you're actually like batting around ideas like we do in the, the club here to some extent. Um, but Katie, I was going to say actually with you, cause like when I think about the, the classes that explicitly taught me how to do something, 
it is like my English lit classes where like they're like here's like literary devices see how they can like use this to do to like talk about other things like beneath the surface or like my film classes that were like look at these different camera angles and like framing and this that and the other and how you can how that like is adds a, an additional layer of meaning like those were things I didn't even know to look for before right right uh, yeah yeah I took a film class and I felt like it was like I had no idea what was going on in a movie at all before that I know I definitely look at it differently so I agree and and if I was going to say any class was like that at least at like the college level it was definitely my my English like 301 my first major English class my favorite professor very just like uh, he basically was like you kind of don't know how to read literature yet like you have to learn how to read it like you're you're not just when you just read words on a page it's like not the same as as taking a close reading and really like taking a deep dive so i think that's the closest but that's still like kind of more specific than just learning how to learn generally i guess so so one of the things he was talking about is that if it is the case that it is important that we learn how to learn, that is what we should start with. We should say like, even at an elementary middle school level, we don't care that you all learn these facts. We care that you learn how to reason and how to, maybe in the case of Katie, analyze literature. So do you think that should be the starting place for education? To be honest though, I do feel like when we were younger, even as early as like maybe third, fourth, fifth grade, I do feel like that conversation was happening in classes, like that we were talking about how to learn, both in like the most like literal basic sense of like, like here's like tips on how to memorize information. And, and also like, I feel like we would take SOLs, like take tests at the end of the year or whatever. And it would be like, our teachers were teaching us how to quickly extract information and big ideas and it was very often the case that like certain classes were geared towards these tests where it was like I can't teach you like all the information that's going to be on the test I have to teach you how to be able to figure out figure it out for yourself once you get there so I do feel like that conversation happens that like that mentality is already infused in our learning at least I felt that I, I agree um because I think when I think back on like elementary level classes, to the extent that I remember them well, like, I mean, to some extent there's like memorization of facts, like, you know, you had like a list of vocabulary words, so, like learn the definitions of these words, whatever. Um, or you would have like, but all, a lot of it was also like you, you might memorize your times tables or something like that. And that's like, feel like memorization of facts. Um, but like learning how to add and subtract and multiply and then like all those basic math skills i think are different than learning facts um and then also like beefing up your like reading comprehension like we're reading like boxcar children it wasn't so that like 20 years later i can tell you the details of boxcar children it's because like if you can learn to understand that then you can learn to understand something a little more complicated and then so on and so forth um i do think that the skill-based learning is pretty built in mm -hmm. Maybe the one exception is like history classes, which I feel bad saying because I like history classes a lot, but like those are the ones that feel the most like just memorization of facts to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So do you think there's there's value to that though? To to having some set of facts as a society that we deem everyone should at least be like exposed to and hopefully memorize. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I do think so. 
what what do you think those are? What's the the purview of that fact set? Okay, here here's one great example. For for whatever reason, I have developed like a newfound obsession with history. I'm telling you, like I'll spend hours just like I'll I'll watch something on YouTube. I'll I'll look up something on Wikipedia and I'll just like go back and forth and I'll write down little timelines. It's like this weird new thing where I'm like, why didn't I think this was cool like for so long? Now I'm obsessed. But there's one thing that I will never, ever, for the rest of my life forget. And that is the fall of Rome in 436 AD. And that that one single anchor point like completely has has aligned like every other chronological event for me because I had this one fact memorized. If I had more, I would have like a way better understanding and that's like something I would like to have more and and like kind of been working on, I guess you'd say, but I, I kind of get mad at myself because I didn't care about history when I was younger, so I didn't memorize these like certain dates that are just at the time seem like, oh, this is just like some stupid year. Why do I care about 1596? You know what I mean? But But now as an adult, I realized like, oh, if I knew what was going on in the 1500s, I had like a certain couple, a couple little dates to work with. I could kind of like recognize how all these things were happening at the same time and how they all work together. Yeah, I think it, it may be important to men to bring up that like, at least in my experience with the American public education system, the history that we're taught is like specifically a history like a political history, um, even when we're looking at world history, like there's broad strokes, like the development of civilization, like we yeah. learned like the Fertile Crescent and like that. But then as soon as you're out of like the basics of like how human civilization came to be, it's all like wars and war and politics, like yeah. this empire beat this empire, because I think, I mean, this is just, is just speculation here that the basic idea is that you have to have a broad understanding of world history so that you can understand this country's current place in the world political system. And the usefulness of that is that you can, you can understand this country's political history and understanding that makes you more able to engage with modern politics and makes you able to be a more engaged and active citizen. Really? Um, just by having an awareness of the way things have gone in the past and the way things can be outside of the way they are now. I mean, I'm sure there's plenty of people who would argue there's a fair amount of like propaganda built into that system and there probably is. Um, but I think if, if we want to take like a big step back approach, I think the, the ultimate goal of like the history education is still kind of to give you a skill set or at least a, an ability to engage politically. Sure. Yeah. The end game to you, it sounds like, and this is a theory of education, is about forming better citizens. Yeah. Katie, Akeem? Uh, I don't know. I'm reminded of a story. Euclid is teaching geometry to some of the students. I don't know if I've told you this story before, but um, the uh, geometry was useless until we discovered projectile motion and that it was used for cannons and warfare. Um, but, uh, the student asked Euclid, like, teacher wise, like, what can I make? How can I make use of this? And he stopped a merchant and told him to give the boy some coin so he could get something for his learning. And so like, I think, I don't know, ever since I was a kid, I just viewed it. My dad just kind of was like, you should learn for the sake of learning. Um, 
And I agree with Katie and Michael that like memorization is part of it. I think memorization and like facts become the fundamental building blocks through which you can connect like um, what you learn with other things. Um, and you can, you can like compare and contrast if you will, to use like the educational terms. Um, but when we say, what's the point of education? Are we talking about like, what's the point of like public education? Because the things that I learned, I didn't learn, but the things that I learned in high school, up until high school, up until the end of high school, like the things that I really learned and the things that were like really different, I learned at home. I learned from reading by myself. I learned from my dad. I didn't really learn that much from my teachers at school. I learned a lot from my professors in college because there was kind of more of a dialogue and they, they were somewhat more of an expert um, discussion going on. Like I could actually consult. They just knew more. And like, I was like ignorant, uh, like much more ignorant in college than I was in high school comparatively. But um, yeah, I guess another point of education is from the public sense is like the socialization of of children and we saw i kind of, i think like we saw what kind of happened when kids had to do remote or homeschool learning during covid um it had a huge impact on like children's mental health because they couldn't could talk to other and, and interact with other kids so i guess that that's another salient point um and i guess that goes back to like what well, Katie and Michael, well, I think Michael, you said it was to like create functioning members of society. Um, yeah, I think I agree with you in terms of that. Like, that's something I guess maybe I took for granted about um, about the school, uh, you know, schooling um, was the socialization element of it. Um, but I think, especially at the very early ages, like um, like the kindergarten for a second grade, it is a lot about teaching kids to like interact with other people in a healthy and productive way. Um, and then, but yeah, I mean, not only that, I mean, all of us here either directly or indirectly met through school, like the Ben, Katie and I all went to school together and Akib, you went to school with Logan, who we went to school with. Um, yeah. so obviously the, those social impacts carry pretty far, I think, even though none of us have been in school together for quite a while. Yeah, one hundred percent. Very sounds right. Do you think that that is, you know, I certainly think in the very early years that is kind of explicitly taught. But did you feel like there was enough of that? Because sort of the the broad thesis that I have after reading some of these things and just thinking about education broadly is that there are all of these things that we do want to achieve. So learning certain facts, being socialized correctly learning how to learn and yet we very rarely or it doesn't seem like the public education we had was often explicitly designed to achieve those three things very often it seems like those three things luckily emerged but that was somewhat of a lucky byproduct rather than that school was designed to really achieve those three things what would you say the designed and it was then what do I think the design was? Yeah, if not those things, what do you think it was? I think it was just based on how schooling had kind of always been historically. And just that momentum has carried without much reevaluation of the core way we do schooling. 
Interesting. I think public schooling is a relatively new thing, though. Yeah, I think it, um, John Dewey was the was, was like the, you know, the <laughs> philosophical kind of um, grandfather of modern public education. Am I right, Berker? I I think so. I mean, I haven't read much of the philosophy of education, I guess, and I was never an education major. Um, but I do think, yeah, I mean, because even, I want to say like public education is like an invention of within the last, I don't know, 150 years. I could be way off on that, but I think broadly speaking that that is the case. I mean, there have been colleges for a very long time, um, but even they were mostly private. And I, and I think other than that, people have, were mostly like privately tutored or like, you might have a little like one room schoolhouse somewhere, but like that didn't go beyond, you know, I don't know, being the, the age of like 12. I think education was highly specified. Yeah. I think it was limited to the few. Um, I don't, I don't know if the point is to necessarily make, I think, uh, the European model, I don't know about all European countries, but like France, it focuses more on like figuring out what children's aptitudes are at a young age and then kind of like designing their future based on that. Um, what do we think of that? Because I don't think we do that. We kind of like tell everyone, hey, there's only one way to succeed or there's this very narrow set of things you should do, like go to college and become a professional, like a white collar professional, but we don't emphasize enough like trades or like other kinds of jobs that are super important in the like uh, formation and like maintenance of a healthy society. Guys, can I interrupt with a funny story? Yeah, please. Yeah. I, uh, okay. So I was working with this other flight attendant and she's like newly hired, maybe three years younger than me. And, um, so I'm talking to her about how she like got the job, whatever. And she was talking about how she went to college, but she didn't even know why she went and she kind of regretted it. Basically, she was like, I didn't even like want to go. And she said, I just feel like my generation is the first that like kind of felt like they have to go to college, you know? And I was like, your generation, we're three years apart. <laughs> and also, I don't think that's new actually at all. At least we're... 10, 20 years, I've been hearing people say that maybe we shouldn't be sending every single kid to college. Um, anyway. Yeah. Also, I think that even like as far back as like the seventies, like people have been feeling like, like the graduate is all about like, he gets home from college and like is directionless because he just went to college to go to college and then <laughs> like, right. Uh, yeah, I don't think that's a new phenomenon at all. That's funny, though. Yeah. So, um, but I do feel like it's a conversation people keep having. And mm -hmm. something I hear talked about so often. And I feel like a lot of people I who are teachers are often the ones saying, like, we should be telling kids to go to trade school. Or we should be telling kids, like, you don't need school for certain things, you know? Um, you know, And by school, I mean college, of course. But Yeah, so I think even as someone who, like, I personally benefited very much from a broad, like liberal arts education. Um, and I think I do believe in its value to a certain extent. Um, I do think there could be space in the education system for more variety or more specialization, maybe. 
starting at possibly a younger age, um, but maybe while still having certain core requirements of liberal arts, of a liberal arts education. Um, I don't know. Any, any other thoughts on that, guys? Akeem, do you know how you would go about assessing a kid's aptitude? Um, Eric Arnold, I don't know how I do. My dad actually had my brother do it when we were kids. Um, he paid for it. Like, it was, like, very expensive, and we couldn't afford it, but we, my dad, my dad's a public school teacher, so is my mom, but my dad wanted to, like, test our aptitudes. He had my brother take it. Um, yeah, I don't know. I haven't written a science. I don't know how, how it would be done, but they, they tested my brother and observed him for, like, four days. Not, like, in a cage or anything, like, they tested him, um, <laughs> So I don't, yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure how you would do that, but I guess one way would be to kind of like, I know our schools are very focused on like, I'm teaching kids to like sit down and listen and shut up during school. And like, not everyone, not everyone likes, that's not necessarily good for every kid. Like, um, some kids like are much more receptive to that and other kids like they need more, something more stimulating and hands-on and physical, um, so, I don't know. I don't know if I could test it, but I would. I would urge it to be like school to be like more kind of uh, schooling to become more diverse in its and it's like um, goals for for children's. Yeah, well, have any concern with schools bucketing kids into identities too early? Oh yeah, I, that's exactly what I say. I don't know if I love that idea because like. Like, again, I have this newfound passion for a whole different type of, like, learning and information that I never cared about when I was a kid. And if I had been, like, tested at a certain age, who knows where it would have ended up. I just feel like, uh, I don't I don't know if I believe that, like, how you test when you're in elementary school should really have any impact on what you learn. And to be honest, I, I think more generalization for a longer time might even be better in my eyes i think it's pretty like i think it's pretty well known that like your aptitudes don't really change that much um so like it's not even about i i don't disagree you should generalize but like i don't think that's what we do with our education system like, i don't think we teach kids general ways of thinking like you don't give you don't give 10 year olds a class on i don't know like it's it's just very um, academic, like academically oriented. It just it doesn't like test kids mechanically, like kids who could be like great plumbers or carpenters don't get the chance to kind of explore that until they're like eighteen. Um, by that time, most society sees them as people who are like behind the curve. So to kind of speak to that, I guess. Um... Like I remember at in when I was an undergrad, my freshman year, I took a class that was cross listed as a math class and a philosophy class, and it was like logic one ten. It was it was like formal logic, um, and I took it because I was interested in you know the philosophy of logic or whatever. Um, and but there were a lot of people who were in there because they needed because there was a core requirement for math, and these were people who were not 
their their aptitude maybe or whatever, they were not particularly well suited to math courses. They just tended to struggle in math classes. And so they, they you know, they thought I can take this logic class instead of taking calculus um, and satisfy my math requirement. Um, because of that, like formal logic is still, there's a reason it's cross-listed with math because it is still very like, like Ben, you probably did some formal logic in your coding because it comes up a lot in coding. Um, like it's, it is still pretty like if this, then that, I mean, there's right. literally if then statements, but like, it, anyways, it, it follows certain, like all this to say, sorry, the professor at the beginning of the course said like, this class is like an extremely high fail rate. Um, blah, blah, blah. Like you will have to do the homework in this class or you like, she's like, if the homework is not for a grade, cause I don't want to further penalize you guys in any way. So, but you will have to do the homework or you will fail this class. Like it has, it automatically has, because it's got a certain, like a certain percentage fail rate. It has built in like grad students who are available. If you want to go to office hours to study extra da, 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 da. and all these features built in. And so like, she really talked about it. It's going to be this hard class and like. I'm not bragging, but it came, like, I have an aptitude for that kind of, like, mathematical, logical reasoning. And so I thought it came very quickly for me. And so I was very surprised that it, like, was talked up as being a super hard class. But I think that's because such a percentage of the people in the class are people who were, don't have an aptitude for mathematical, logical thinking. And we're taking it to get out of this math requirement that was just the, the requirement the university put on getting any degree. Um, and so, of course, they were not suited to that class either. Um... So I do see kind of like, I don't know that those people, like any amount of people would have made those people apt or like suited for a math class at that point. Um, so I kind of see what it keeps saying in terms of like aptitudes being fixed to some extent. Um, but I don't know. Any thoughts on that? That just seems fundamentally strange to me. Like it sort of sounds like what you're claiming is that there's some people whose brains are such that no matter what you do, they will never be able to process numbers in a mathematical way. And that just, well, not that, but that it maybe that won't come easily. Like, like for instance, like I have an extremely difficult time learning foreign language, but some people pick that up extremely very quickly. Oh, well, so I'm the same way. And I was forced to take foreign language in college and it was the classes yeah. I was weakest in. Do you think we should force people to take things that aren't aligned with their aptitudes because it achieves some more general, generalized liberal arts education? Or at the up point you're in college, point, probably, probably up to a point. And then, and then the question in my mind is, where is that point? Right. Um, like Akib is kind of saying that maybe it seems like he's suggesting that maybe earlier on, like at the high school level, we could let people who seem to not be suited to math, stop taking some of those math classes and start taking something else, explore their other, explore other interests. Um, and I don't know that I totally disagree with that. Um, but I do still at the same time think that like, yeah, you probably should be required to take a government class so that like you emerge from high school as an adult person in this world with some basic understanding of the way our government works and can engage with it. Yeah. When that happens is a sticking point for me because high school even, I might be with Katie, but I think we should go longer. People are educated longer with more generalization so that you have the opportunity to find what your actual aptitude is and not get bucketed too early. Yeah. Also, I have to say for us in high school, I do feel like we had a good bit of leeway to to decide what we wanted to learn and for how much. Like I got up to like AP stat in math. I don't even know if I had a math class senior year of high school because I think I might have hit all the math requirements. 
But like there were other students who were in like governor's school taking physics and calculus that year. So there was, I mean, we just went to a public school. I mean, governor's school is a little bit of a more complicated thing, I guess. But in just like a regular public school in the South, we had a pretty good amount of like, you can choose your classes and choose what suits you. You have certain requirements and not others. And, you know, whatever. Make of it what you will. I feel like yeah, that's fair. a pretty good amount, to be honest. Like, I wouldn't, I think if I were thinking of like my niece going to school, would I want her to learn all of the same things? I definitely wouldn't want her to learn like less math than I did. You know, I feel like pretty useful and thinking, exercising your brain to work in that way is important. Um, so I, I, yeah, I think if anything, I might say we could use more like generalization. And the, and another thing is I went to college and got like my requirements and got out and like didn't do any real like exploration because of, like we said earlier, I was so afraid of debt. And looking back, I'm kind of like, dang, I wish I could have just like taken some other classes that kind of expanded my horizons a little bit more. Personally. Yeah. Ben, Akeep, any thoughts? I'm curious for you all. Was there any strong influence from your parents on what courses you took? Oh, yeah. No. No. Interesting. What about self? What was that, Akeep? Yeah, somewhat. I have a Japanese physics teacher. So I was tired of getting taught math and like he taught us like calculus in sixth and seventh grade uh i just didn't want to study math or science because it just reminded me of being being lectured oh i'm gonna be dead <laughs> so i studied english and i really liked reading but i just was like didn't want to do math or science um yeah also, going to West Point and knowing that I was going to have a job afterwards, like, I just was like, I'm going to study whatever the fuck I want. And, yeah, I wasn't worried about, like, I wasn't, I didn't study English because I was like, oh man, like, I can't wait to, like, use this. I was just like, I'm studying because I enjoy it. And that was kind of liberating. Did you major in English? Yeah. Hmm. I know that. Kitty, what did you major? Um, this is uh, kind of funny because of that whole aptitudes thing. I went in as a bio major. Then I thought I was going to do maybe pre-med, which is hilarious in retrospect. But uh, when I went in to speak to the dean to change my major, um, he looked at like how I had done. This was after the first semester. And he looked at how I had done in my classes. And he was like, I think you have an aptitude for this. I would really like for you to stay and try this program. I think you would do really well. Like, I don't see why you would want to leave. You're doing great. And I was just like, I don't want to study math and science anymore. I don't like it. It's not fun. Um, so I was an English major after that. I wanted to do philosophy and my parents were like, are you stupid? No. <laughs> my mom was like, English is close enough and somebody will give you a job. So. So that was the closest I can get. Yeah, that's what I started as a business major. Um, so I think I was thinking purely, I, well, well, I started undeclared technically, but with the intention of going into business of some sort. Um, <laughs> you have to go in as like a Russian major or something. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's like a long story of um, 
my having been a Virginia resident trying Michael, to- Michael, I think this is the perfect venue to tell that story. <laughs> <laughs> admit it. Admit it. Um, <laughs> yeah, I was, I mean, I, my major changed a fair amount and sometimes uh, I was not- uh, acting in good faith in terms of when I declared my major to be one thing or another. Um, I'm just, just, just trying to get in-state tuition, um, through some weird loopholes. But anyways, um, <laughs> I, yes, came in undeclared with the intention of becoming a business major and, um, took like a handful of business classes and just didn't care much about them. I was still like a philosophy, taking philosophy classes all along as like a minor, essentially what's the game plan. Because I liked philosophy, and then, yeah, after kind of being in and out of undergrad and out of school for a little while, when I came back in at one point, I decided, fuck it, I'm just going to be a philosophy major and get the degree, even if it's not pragmatically useful. Um, I like it, and then I can figure out what I'm doing from there. Uh, I'd get Mr. and Mrs. Minnie. <laughs> <laughs> um, but what's funny is, like, I remember... <laughs> Sitting in, a, in a sitting in a philosophy class and this this guy um actually like he joined the class like two weeks after it had started like just before the end of the ad drop date um and he came in and like he, he, i remember him saying like the professor asked him about like why he in front of the whole class for some reason about why he joined the class or why he was joining late or whatever something along those lines and i just remember the guy was like yeah i was a business major then i decided to stop wasting my time i'd switch to philosophy that's <laughs> like Listen, brother, I agree with you hundred percent, but uh <laughs> but you've gotta realize how much of a cock you sound like saying that. Like <laughs> That's good. That's rich. Um, yeah. What about you, Ben? Computer computer, computer science and math. Did you know you wanted to do that from the jump? I did. Did. <laughs> This is this is kind of a related story, but but so one of the the point this guy was making is that like we don't learn facts well, but that one of the big purposes of education is what he calls vibes, which is sort of just discovering your intellectual passions, and and developing a competence towards learning. Wait, he calls it what? He calls it vibes. Like vibes. Vibes, good vibes. Educational vibes, bro. He calls it educational vibes. <laughs> I sure wasn't vibing with business, so his side of philosophy was a much, uh, much cooler vibe. It's called into question everything you said that this guy said and everything this article's about at this point. This <laughs> guy is like really a, about the vibes. He is a, a a PhD psychologist from Columbia, so like. <laughs> Sorry, this kind of threw me off, but yeah, so it's like, it's the little experiences that you have that end up influencing where you end up in life. So for me, this was our calculus teacher, Ms. Hanks. She was like, Hey Ben, you seem pretty good at this topic. And she gave me like a challenge problem to do like just on my own for the sake of learning it. And when I like cracked the problem in the next class, it felt so good. I was like, holy shit. I'm like, maybe I'm good at math. And I think there's a direct line from that very simple experience and my majoring in math. That's awesome. Did you ever miss Hanks sitting me down and saying, Mike, you have to start doing the homework. You're wasting your potential. <laughs> <laughs> well, does that change? I know I, 
Uh, it didn't. It didn't. I didn't find that to be a convincing argument. Um, I do remember specifically, though, um, a similar thing uh, in Miss Alexander's AP literature class. Um, I remember feeling like I got a lot of valuable skills out of that in terms of like the way, like other classes we'd done close readings of books and things, I guess. But Miss Alexander was just very good at teaching that, I thought. Um, and I do remember also she was in grad school or something. She was she was in some kind of a film class and she had me like stay after one time to do like a little, she had me like watch a movie. Well, uh, it was like a Hitchcock film, The Rope. Um, and then she was like, she's like, use some of like the literary devices we've looked at in literature class and apply them to this movie and see if you can like do the same kind of literary analysis we're doing in books to like this film. And she had me like record it because she was like her, it was like an education class and she it was specifically talking about like using literary devices to teach film or vice versa. Um, but I remember I was like, that was, that was a terrific assignment and made me engage with the material in a great way. And, um, and I don't know. Yeah, it was, it was fantastic. Uh, and and maybe, and yeah, the, like the thing that I was talking about earlier with like film classes that taught me to approach, it, it made me want to take film classes is what it did. Um, not that I ended up using that in my real life, but I really enjoyed them. And I mean, I do use it when I watch movies all the time, I guess. I was going to say, you use it in your real life literally all the time. Yeah. Yeah. I, just, I, I said it's just not using it in a career perspective. Yeah. Um, but yeah. That's so funny. I Miss Alexander also sat me down once in our, I, I had her twice actually. And it might have been when I had her like sophomore year or something. And I had like written an assignment and turned it in. And he was like, this is really good. I really like this. Like, you should expand on this, whatever. I don't even know what she said. But it made me feel like, oh, I guess I'm pretty good at this. And I, I can pretty much guarantee that's why. I was like, I'd be a pretty good English major. Like, I guess I'd do okay at that. So all it takes is one, one teacher. Mm. Yeah, I guess all my other really memorable experiences from from school are just like really pushing the boundaries and arguing with teachers about things. Um, <laughs> which I guess also leans into the philosophy. <laughs> and maybe I, I did always have an aptitude for philosophy and argument. Too, but, I don't know. <laughs> but um, yeah. <laughs> I'm so curious before we kind of close out and give I don't know high level thoughts on this, Katie. What do you think? How do you think the history education you took in high school could have been changed to spark this passion you're feeling now? Mm. Do you have to be the person you are now to appreciate it? Well, it's so funny. I think about this all the time. Um, so part of it is that uh, with my job now, I can see a lot of things in person I had never seen before that really made history real in a way that was just like so exciting and um like the more i learned history the more exciting going to something like a historical site becomes and it's just become like this like feedback group of just like constantly being like okay everywhere i go i'm gonna read a little bit about the history and then when i get there i'm gonna see something that i read about and then i'm gonna read more about it later so partially that i think like there there's just no substitute for like certain types of like hands-on or physical experiences. Um, secondly, I wish that when we were learning history when we were younger, there was a little bit more emphasis on like the humanity of historical figures or even like groups of people in like the ancient or prehistoric past. Because I think what's so fascinating to me is to think that like just some dude was just like living in ancient Rome and he was just a guy. And like if we hung out with him, like 
we probably share some laughs. We probably drink some wine. You know, he was just chilling. He was just like, he was vibing. He 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 had vibes. Like Are you referencing just, a specific dude or just the fact? No, no. This one, this one is like general. This one's general. This one's general. Um, or like, or like in the prehistoric past, like thinking about like early hominid species being like actually so close to what we are like in so many ways despite having like completely opposite lifestyles in almost every other way like just the fact that like we've been talking and laughing and singing and like doing all of these very human things for so long it's so it's so cool when you think about these people as just dudes just guys yeah this is kind of almost unrelated but i remember in school like you learn that like at the end of his second term, George Washington just didn't want to be like he could have run for a third term and like for sure would have gotten it. And he was just like, yeah, I'm just done with this. I just want to go home mm -hmm. to Mount Vernon and like chill. Um, and uh, and I remember like that thing, <laughs> like the reason they teach you that is so like you're like, oh, this is where the two term like limit basically like start. Like it wasn't codified there, but like that's where it basically started was two terms. Um, and then. <laughs> And then, like, recently, having moved back to Virginia, uh, like, after having been gone for, like, almost 10 years, I'm like, dude, I get it, George. This is, like, it's nice around here, man. I also would like to just hang out at Mount Vernon and, like, <laughs> that sounds pretty fucking sweet, dude. Uh, who wants to have to, like, run this country? Jesus. Like, when I can hang out in, like, the rolling hills of Mount Vernon, Virginia, <laughs> sign me up. Um... <laughs> But yeah, anyway, sorry. I was just with what Katie, what your comment reminded me of. Well, I guess that's like, that's like why George Washington, for one, I love the concept that George Washington wasn't like, oh, we should be careful about giving one person too much power. Instead, no, he just wanted to retire and chill. I like thinking of it that way. Um, secondly, I think that's why George Washington is like such a captivating figure for like Americans is that we're taught so much about his like outside personal life that he really does seem like just a dude like he sounds like your grandpa like you know quite a few stories about just like he lied and chopped down the cherry tree or whatever the hell but like he's a person he's a guy he had wooden teeth you know whatever random stuff like that comes up and it makes him feel more complete so obviously can't sit around and do that for like every historical figure but i don't know i think that's what makes it fun so anyway that's that's my assessment with history, but I don't know. You can't really project that onto other subjects. I guess I guess the hands-on aspects, though, heard it with certain and certain. I think you could probably humanize history a fair amount more than we do. I think you're right, I and mean, that would be helpful for a lot of people to grasp it. I don't know, Ben. Is there anything you wish that like, in our education had done that would have made it easier for you to dig into computer science? Well, I, I had, we only had one computer science course at PH and to say the least, it was not rigorous. <laughs> like at one point, this is a true story. Um, our teacher had done something wrong with the grades and I brought this up to her and she was like, all right, Ben, how do I grade this class? And she just gave me the power to distribute the grades in the class or like how they were computed. <laughs> That's awesome. You know, I guess like in my case, it would have been like provide more courses by competent people. 
Ben, how did you stay so humble? I feel like that would have given me a god complex immediately. <laughs> I feel like fail that guy over there. That's the number one rule. <laughs> I mean, Ford Carson wasn't that class. It's like Ben, come on. <laughs> so here's one. There's kind of like not a delicate way to put this, but teenagers are volatile to say the least. So how do we balance the fact that it seems like there are things that we as a society want people to know, but if we give teenagers, especially too much autonomy, they're just going to choose by and large, like the easiest way out. Like, I do think there were a lot of people at PH that took whatever the easiest math class was because it was the easiest math class. <laughs> Whereas I'm sure many of them had the aptitude and may have benefited from more advanced classes. Do you all have any, because part of it sounds paternalistic, but also we're just dealing with teenagers. Yeah. That's kind of why I, I'm sort of on the like, keep it really general train because I was such a slacker in high school. Like if I could get an A not trying, then I was going to do that just simply yeah. to get so I don't, I, I think, and if you had given me the opportunity to do things that now I would think were super cool and interesting and fun to learn about, I would not have done it because it was just work. And like, I just didn't want to do work basically. So I think that's a, such a good point. Like with teenagers, they, they can't handle freedom I, very much. I mean, obviously they need some, some extent, but they also need to be told like, like this is more important, more useful and cooler than like you think it is right now. Sometimes they can though. Like Ben, your example of like you were given like an extra problem. Like that was what made, like you enjoyed that. And like Alexander gave me that extra like weird film literature assignment. And I did enjoy that and like went out of my way to do that. Um, so Michael, I wonder how much we are outliers though. Yeah. Ben is special. Ben is, ben is special. There's no arguing that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah. I think any one, also any one-on-one -on -one assignment like that just like has this special quality of like, I, I'm chosen. Like I have to, I can't slack off. The eye is on me. Like all eyes on me. I can't, or, or, and even aside from that, I have this opportunity to like do something special and, and, you know, stand out. I think teenagers like that, but that, I mean, when it comes to like a classroom setting, it's no longer quite like that. Does anyone know the light chemical romance songs? The teenagers song by Oh, they yeah. say that I just scared the living shit out of. That's how you guys sound right now, okay? Teenagers can't handle freedom. You kidding me? It is how we. Yeah, I feel like <laughs> such a like a, a I don't know. <laughs> such an I... old person talking about these these damn kids. <laughs> I mean, I don't think it's wrong, but like I look back at who I was as a teenager and I was like so stupid. It made terrible choices. Like, and I thought for sure I was so right about everything, you know? And I, and even when people would tell me that, I, I think I could kind of see like, okay, I'm going to grow up and I'm going to change, but you really can't. So I guess I'm speaking about myself mostly. I was a rowdy teen. So. And I think the median teen is pretty rowdy. Yeah. Y'all ever seen Euphoria? <laughs> These are crazy. 
<laughs> like, yeah. So there is this in the background of this whole conversation is we are people who self-selected to do a philosophy club in high school, which in and of itself is so far from the median teenager. Yeah. That's a fair point. <laughs> yeah. And even still, I was one of the stupidest ones I knew. So I don't know. I just, yeah, I guess that is an old person thing to say. But also like people who didn't, like, if we're talking about this, this hypothetical median teenager, um, what is it that they, you know, I call them Alec Travers, throw a name on it. <laughs> That's funny. My first person was Alec Henshaw. <laughs> you have the Alec on deck. But, um, what, what is it, what is it that they think back on their education? Do they feel like they wasted too much time doing one thing or another? Or they wish there were more opportunities for something else? Can any of us speak for that person? This hypothetical median teenager? <laughs> Ben, speak for Alec. Let's hear it. Let's see, so he's very into business and entrepreneurship. And I don't remember PH having many opportunities for that. Mm -hmm. hmm. Well, there was like econ classes and there was... Oh, that's, that's very different than... Yeah, no, that's true. Econ is very mathematical. Uh, there was a, a club of some sort that was like future business something i don't know how how prominent it was the fact that i can't even remember the name of this club tells you something i guess but uh <laughs> yeah but those guys probably had no idea philosophy club ever existed to be fair yeah, so. yeah true pretty niche <laughs> i'm trying to think about like sapel and emily if they've ever said something along these lines because they would be like why would you do this like why would you go to this club like they would no hateration, but they were just like, what? Yeah, <laughs> they get it. Yeah, they were. <laughs> it. So I'm, I'm remembering a story involving Eric Agron. I love how many names we're dropping on this oh, podcast. Yeah, yeah, we're doing a lot of name dropping here. <laughs> yeah, if you guys just want to like spill their address, social security number. <laughs> but this was like right after college. Logan had invited us to a weekend at his lake house. And we were sitting out, fire pit going, beautiful evening, peer, peering out at the lake. There's kind of a lull in the conversation. <laughs> and Eric just blurts out something to the effect of like, did you guys actually learn anything useful in college? <laughs> 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 yeah, I'm torn about this whole conversation. If you were education czar, are there any major changes to the education system you would make? Honestly, like, depends on what level you're talking about, Ben, because we're talking about education and it, as it, it's, like, federally centralized. Let's do, let's do, like, up until college. I wouldn't want there to be an education czar. Okay, yeah. so you would, you would evict yourself from a position. That's... And no, I would lot I would I would not want there to be a centralized authority deciding what children learn. Mm -hmm. That's all I'm saying. I think that's kind of like Yeah, I don't know if that's like the best way. So you go I'll about to read that there should be certain standard things that everyone has to learn. I don't know about that. Um 
I I think it should be like um yeah I, as local as possible um and then I do think there's how do you how do you, how can that in that, that case are you cool with like certain localities just teaching like evolution eight like <laughs> I don't know but then that's like one example I'm just gonna right. say for sure like but people people do that yeah but like, like we let that if your educations are you're gonna let that happen damn um man uh yeah if that's what people believe yeah for sure for sure yeah i mean look i'm saying it's already happening like people send their kids to private schools where they're taught things like that so it's not like it's not something i can or can't what happen well i think the private school thing is is different because i think when we're talking about public school it's the opportunity for all children to like to to learn a baseline level whereas private school is like those kids have that opportunity they just are forced to that's not their talk their parents but, but i think that we still have to like establish a baseline for all children in america they have this ability to get this knowledge fair enough no i agree i i, I agree would uh, be okay with a particular locality of of <laughs> of <laughs> like an educational district uh having a system that like advocated for white supremacy or like um just because it was what the people around there believed um honestly uh as long as federal taxpayer dollars aren't going into it if their taxpayer dollars are going into teaching kids that like like i don't think it's good i don't like it but like they can do that sure like is that a bad thing sure i don't know anyone who does that um but plus but yeah like they can do it and like yeah, right. sure. Why do you so? I understand there's a political valence to that take, but what do you think is pedagogically useful about local curriculum versus a federal standard? Mm. I can see it in history a little bit. Like if we learn specifically deeper about Virginia history versus another state's history, that makes sense to me. But beyond that, I really can't think of any example where a local curricula seems beneficial. Well, you might be right. I don't know if it's beneficial. I don't know if it's a federal curriculum that's beneficial. Like, what is a federal curriculum? And is it beneficial? Like, I think you're, I think, look, I think you guys are extremely valid in saying, like, what if local people start teaching children like crazy shit what if they start teaching children like better things like more deeply and stop focusing on standardized testing and having to answer to a to a larger system that's forcing them to focus teaching kids things like basic memorization instead of actual learning so well no to go ahead uh, all i was gonna say is firstly i don't think that this like necessitates that we're saying like there needs to be testing done like okay uh, i think that's a separate conversation and second it's also like especially if there's not going to be like okay there's a standardized test everybody takes at the end of the year or whatever 
it's like setting a limit for what has to be taught can just be the minimum. It's not like a limit on everything that can be taught. So it's not like, yeah, so I think you could still go as deeply or as like whatever the word you just used was like, as any teacher is inclined to do, they can still take it and go further, go teach more, teach more than just memorization or, you know, whatever. How do you, how do you measure, uh, that schools have taught the baseline? I think testing is how, how we do that. Um, I mean, I'm not an education major, but I would guess something like submission of curriculum information, uh, like has to be, has to be passed. I mean, that's not how we do it. We do it through testing. Well, testing is how we do it. Yeah. But it doesn't have to be like, we could, we could have, um, just as we have like, you know, every school district in the nation has a superintendent's office and whatever, and a, and a like role of that superintendent's office could be monitoring the curriculum that is being taught within its region and ensuring that it matches the federal standards. Um, and that way you, you do take, you put some of the onus on the local um, and then leave them up for, for review. You have like an office that established that goes through and does review periodically of these localities. Um, but you can have the policing of it be local as so long as that policing office or, you know, administration is reviewed. Policing and educating, policing, the term, Lord, policing within, like, is it, is it a 30 words? Sorry. That, it, you know, yeah, it really just, <laughs> yeah, no, also it just like, I, like, you know, both of my parents are teachers. And the public teachers, the public school teachers, like, and, and like, from what I've seen, like, once you start involving federal bureaucracy, which is the federal government is like the most inefficient manager of funds and resources, like you start like dealing, like teachers are just dealing with loads of paperwork and bureaucracy most of the time. And their freedom to actually like engage in real discussion gets less and less every year. Like it's, um, because of that. So I, I just don't know if like. That's a fair point. It, I don't know if it's feasible. It's like, I'm not worried. I'm not worried that people in Fairfax, Virginia, if you localize school schooling, are going to start teaching kids like that the KKK was a great organization. I'm not really worried about that. But like if they do. Fairfax. <laughs> well, it's not Fairfax. Yeah. But like, look, in the towns and places that like, that you would want, like that you'd be afraid that this would happen. Like it either already is and federal funding and federal mandates aren't actually, they're not really doing anything to help that. Um, so I, I don't think the problem is like you have to teach kids because guess where those teachers come from? They're local teachers. You're not bringing in teachers from like the Northeast or from Fairfax going into these like rural towns, teaching these kids their education and they're learning from their parents and their grandparents. So like, like, I don't know if, I don't know if like you could actually like I don't know if that's practical from a fiscal standpoint. I don't think it is. And and from a, one thing I did, I was listening to a podcast yesterday, preschool in Oklahoma, they mandated for four-year-olds, they gave all four-year-olds free preschool. This Republican congressman snuck this bill in and convinced a, bu a bunch of other Republicans to sign for it. And it got passed. But they didn't know that it was going to tie the state government into paying for the preschool. And it did. And... It's changed drastically the results of kids from elementary school on. Like it's made, like, um, they they did a bunch of studies about like children, um, their ability to be productive members of society if they had a preschool education. Um, and anyway, got passed and it was great. 
Um, so I guess that's, I haven't looked too deeply into it, but it was at this American Life podcast yesterday's episode. Um, so yeah, I think there is merit to like standardizing certain things, but I don't even know if that's why it was super successful. I think it was successful because it, uh, socialized children and it basically they, by the time they got to kindergarten, they could already recognize like basic things like colors, numbers, letters, patterns. Um, yeah. Thoughts? Um, so I guess if you want to avoid this policing or monitoring, mm -hmm. um, and you're talking about things in like the sense of localities, yeah, it's me that there would still be like, if it's the locality, there's still the superintendent watching over it or else what you're suggesting is just like every teacher makes up what they want to teach individually. And then that like eradicates the problem of like there needing to be any levels of like bureaucracy and people watching over what happens in the levels below. So um, I'm wondering which one you're sort of thinking, like every teacher for themselves or like we just make the problem just like within a district or like within a town. Honestly, if it was every teacher for themselves, like it might be even, I mean, it's like extreme, but like what it would do probably is it would, or every school for itself, it would probably introduce the education system to the free market. And so then people would, like schools would be incentivized to do better. Uh, that is like kind of the way that the college system works is that quite often professors have to some extent, unless it's like one of those core classes that everyone has to have. Professors have, to some extent, free reign to teach their classes, at least on the specifics, the way they want to. And they just have to get it approved by the school's administration, and then that school just has to maintain its accreditation yeah, um, sure. with a larger I, board. I think college is, is an interesting example. Uh, like, I, I don't think schools, I think, like, you can create charter a charter school system where, like, people can choose where to send their kids to school. And the schools have to compete for that charter money, which is a good thing because now now teachers are more incentivized to teach, and teachers would get paid more too. Like it's uh, happened in Taiwan um, as well, and like students would probably get better education. Um, so I don't. The college thing is an interesting example. This college is functioning primarily like their their, you know, the cost of college has become ridiculous because it's it's so reliant on. Um, government uh government loans and they take those loans and they use them to like kind of inflate the cost of their school because that's just free money for them and more debt for the student um but i i think that like once you introduce the free market into edu public education i think like teachers would get paid more and the quality of education would get would go higher like people would be like people who are working at Research labs would be like, you know what? I'm going to go teach high school physics because this is a super competitive field, and it's, and I can, I'll make as much money as I'm making now. Um, so I think we don't incentivize teachers enough. Like people who become teachers become teachers because they're passionate about teaching. All my dad's colleagues are overqualified to teach, but there's not enough of them. Um, because they're just the incentive structure isn't there. So, um, I'd say in like in New York City, the people I've met um, in New York City and in New Jersey, there seems to be a lot more of systems like that. Like there was yeah. somebody that I know went to a school that is not like their district public school because yep. basically they're not getting good educations in those public schools. Yeah. Um, 
And it's a great example too. It, it, it's really upsetting because what's left for the kids who just have to go on wherever the closest like bus route takes them or what's left for the kids who just they have to go to the one that they walk to three blocks down from them. And then it's well, like the money that you're talking about goes to these like private schools that give these kids who already come from a background of privilege who can afford these like incredibly expensive private schools well a better lot in life you're not so you're not wrong about that like schools will, some schools will be better than others like it's that's just like scarcity like not everything can be equally um arrayed if you're going to have different qualities and things but i i I do think that because of volatility and an open market, like you will allow competitors to come in. Somebody will be like, you know what? I have a better educational model and I'm going to, I'm going to like go teach at the school or I'm going to become the principal of the school and I'm going to change the model at the school and, and things will shift to that school. And it, it'd be much more volatile. It'd be like Patrick, you guys went to Patrick Henry. It was a great school like 10 years ago. Now it's like a mediocre school and this other school is great. Like, I think it would create a lot more volatility in our education system and volatility that kind of volatility, I think, is always good. Um, I don't know that I would say it's always good. I think that kind of volatility is good if, like, you're trying to get the best pizza and, like, all that's happening is that, like, the people who shop at the wrong pizza shop are getting a worse pizza. Well, but when the product is dough, when the product is so much, okay. like, the product here is children. Um, and, right. So, like, someone getting, like, some, some children just turning into shitty pizzas sounds pretty awful to me. I don't know. <laughs> so, hey. No, guys, I think I think that already happens. I think, in fact, with the current system, more children turn into shitty pizza than w than they would if with with this w other proposition. That's what I'm. That's what I'm kind of positing. Like, I would say it seems to me that maybe maybe more children turn into mediocre pizza. That I could maybe agree with. Yeah. I think public uh, education creates more mediocre pizza than anything else. Really, I love my public education, and and I know you do. And you're a self-selecting person too. Like like we said, you chose to go to philosophy club. Not everyone at Patrick Henry was like philosophy club. That sounds like the thing to do. There are a few people in back. Yeah, there are very few people, and so I think you guys are are like, you guys are anomalies. I wouldn't consider you guys like the normal student. Um, well, so, anyway. regardless, I think that that many students had the opportunity to take. Like I I. I, I'm not that smart, but I took a lot of AP classes because it was just available to me. And I went into college as a junior because of that. And I didn't try. Like, that's just how the, the not that I didn't try in the classes. I didn't try to. Sounds that like you were smart, Katie. No, that, well, that, not. that's true. Uh, I, so you part of definitely AR, but B also pet PH was just had an unusually high number of AP availability. Um, like I, everyone I've spoken, right. I've met a lot of like very smart people. Right. Dense who had not nearly the opportunities we had. That's what I mean. Exactly. Like, PH was just a public school that was operating pretty well and had a lot of AP classes available. And I don't think that it's impossible to say we could continue to get more public schools to that level. I don't think that we should just, like, allow the possibility that, like, okay, we're going to try this, like, new system of how we run the public schools. And if for the next 10 years we don't have, like, some genius who's going to change how things are done in this one school. Every kid who's educated here for 10 years is just going to suffer. Because basically, yeah. just arguing that, like, we need one one really strong will come in and save them. Like, I mean, not just one, but I, that that already happens. Like, that's already happening. And it's longer term. Like, the good schools have remained the good schools in Fairfax 
and the shitty ones have remained the shitty ones, not just for the last 10 years, for the last like 30 years. So I don't, I don't, what I'm suggesting is volatility creates the opportunity to rise and fall, which is better than just like stasis. And I don't think public education, like, at like the, 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 what's it called? The, um, the public education industrial complex. I don't think it, I don't think it does that for us. I don't think it does. I, I guess, I mean, I don't, yeah, wrong. it's hard because when we start talking about this, it becomes like so theoretical and abstract that well, there's three steps. I, I believe that, like Michael said, probably where we are now, even though it's a stasis, most public schools meet a minimum requirement. And that minimum, while maybe it's not the ideal scenario, it guarantees that everyone gets what they minimally need. Or in theory, maybe it's not perfectly executed, but we should hope that it is and work towards it being better. But I think would sorry, keep going. But I think in what you're proposing, you're like necessitating highs and lows, and the fact I w I think that ultimately it would be better to set a minimum standard and do our best to enforce that rather than allow the fact that yeah, this is going to suffer in some places sometimes for some years. I do think there's a minimum that mostly is being met. I don't, I don't think it is. I don't think we are, as a country, we are meeting, we're like, I don't know what standards we're talking about, but like our Mississippi public schools are not meeting like the minimum standard. Um, there's, there are, there are schools like, yeah, fuck you, Mississippi. <laughs> right? No, we're fear for now. That's the worst in the country. Yeah. Louisiana, <laughs> Mississippi, like a lot, a, a lot of the country doesn't meet. Like, I don't think we would consider what they teach, like the level that they can teach at their schools to even meet the minimum standard. So let's, let's there's say no incentive. There's no incentive. You can't, you can enforce a policy, but if there's no incentive structure, I don't think that that like, you, resources are scarce, like good teachers and good professionals are scarce. So like, you need to incentivize people to like go into teaching and just telling people like, Hey, this is the minimum standard is not going to be like, it's not going to motivate a guy with a master's in physics to be like, yeah, that, you know what? That sounds good. I'm going to go teach. It's just going to be like, no, I'm not going to, I'm not going to teach. Like I don't make any money. Uh, like there's minimum standards I have to teach to. And that's all I can, that's kind of all I can do. Um, so I don't know. I mean, my, my gut reaction to that is that it, it, that could also just be boiled down to a, at a larger scale, a resource allocation issue. Like the reason a lot of the best engineers end up working for like Raytheon is because the United States government will spend a shitload of money buying missiles from Raytheon. And so Raytheon can pay their engineers a shitload of money. Along the, um, yeah. Whereas like if we spent a shitload of money on education instead, then we could pay teachers a shitload of money and then those engineers would go teach physics. That's right. I don't, I don't know. That's if I don't think that if, if so, if we subsidized education, like if we kept subsidizing education more, yeah, we could pay. Theoretically, we could pay teachers more, but like it wouldn't be market optimal. Like, I don't think it's good. I don't think the military industrial complex is a good thing. I think we misallocate resources militarily all the time. Like, if we allowed it to be open and free, or more open and free, it'd be better. And they've they've moved. There's they've tried to move towards that. That's why you have like smaller companies like Palantir and Vandiver coming out, and they're hiring people right out of Raytheon and Google and like big Microsoft, big companies. They're going straight to them. Um, 
um, because they were allowed to enter the market as, as smaller players. So like, I, I don't like resource allocation. Like if you just, if you allow the, 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 like if you incent, if you create an incentive structure, I think like that will, it'll solve itself. I think that problem will solve itself. I think that I think we... people will be incentivized to go into public schools and more people will demand like better teachers because they'll like, they'll be out there. So I think we all have a structure to do that. Sorry. I think we do. Like Teach for America is is the first thing that comes to mind where we help pay off. I don't I, I don't know if that's actually federally funded or what it is, but um, where people are given the opportunity to teach in public schools that specifically need the help for uh, for maybe a lesser salary and for their student loans to be forgiven. Right. That's I think that's that's the trade off. So that's like an example of an incentive that we could potentially direct more funding to federally or otherwise. But I guess yeah, it's a little volatile because it still involves federal funding, uh, federal stuff, federal funding, federal funding and and the and the forgiveness of probably federal loans. Um, but yeah, no, that's a good example. I think that 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 probably helps a little bit. But I don't know if it really does make that much of a dent. Well, I mean, in your case, were you saying that just a few really bright teachers who have the money incentive, if they come into these schools, they can fix it and make it a better school? So so Teach for America is like 22-year-olds who between the ages of 22 and 23 or 22 and 24 will teach for two years, like uh, like freshman and sophomore level classes, if that. Usually it's eighth grade, seventh or eighth grade too. Um, I met a bunch in Hawaii. I don't know if that's like an effect, an example where that's actually an effective thing to do. Um, and, and, and the school system is still like very centralized, like public schools, super centralized. It's centrally controlled. Like individual schools don't have autonomy and they're not incentivized to have autonomy. Um, but if they were, I think it would, it would encourage competition and competition would, would create like better schools. Okay. So I guess I'm confused in what, what you're kind of saying um, is the ideal scenario. So you're thinking like, if we pay teachers enough, we'll get masters in engineering who will come in and teach these high school classes. So where that money is coming from, it's not even that, it's not even that we pay teachers enough. It's not like when we say, when you say we pay teachers enough, what do you mean by we? Well, I, I, that's actually what I'm asking you exactly is like, who's paying the students? parents are paying a higher fee to go to these nicer schools and so then nicer better teachers more more equipped teachers will come in and teach no so there is still funding for for schools it's just each and this is an interesting it's the kind of the new york example you brought up parents are get a kind of an allotment and they can choose to spend that allotment on whatever school they want so the schools have to compete uh with each other to get this money from the parents and parents get this money from the, from the government or from the state where they pay taxes for education. Right. And so now schools are incentivized, more incentivized to compete for funding. So, okay. That makes sense. Uh, another thing that, that worries me though, is that it's not always so simple for a family that okay, this other school, a 30-minute drive away, is better. And I could, in theory, put my money to sending my child to the school, but I work every single morning and sure. every single afternoon and I can't drive my kid to and from there. 
So yeah. they go where's closest. I still think like there's always going to be children left behind in these. There will be. There always will be in every scenario. That's just the, that's like in a world of scarcity, there will always be people with more resources and some with less, or there will always be people with like who will get something first and other people will miss out on it. I don't know if that's something that's avoidable. Um, I'm not saying we should ignore that. That's not what I'm suggesting at all. Um, I just don't think it's like, I don't know how brilliant it is. I think to my mind, the issue I have when you suggest this competitive system yeah. is that like it, yes, I think you're probably correct that this competition would make some schools better, but I think it would also by necessity make some schools worse. Um, and I don't know that I'm willing to, like, yes, better school sounds better, but I don't know that I'm willing to accept that at the cost of making other schools worse. Uh, why would it make other schools worse? Because of the scarcity of resources. You're trying. Like, you're, you're describing a situation where we don't pump any extra funding into education. We just make the schools better able to compete for the funding that exists. Um, so if one school is able to get more of that funding that currently exists than this other school, if school A is getting 60% now instead of 50 then school B is getting now instead of 50, 40%. Like, so they are necessarily getting less money because school A is getting more money. Yeah. How do they get, to so get more money, to get more money, they have to like do better. So then they're like, they're like, oh crap, I have to do better to get more money or to get more funding. So we're going to start competing. But that's also like, you've given them an uphill battle now. Like if, if for the last five years, school B has been getting 40% versus 60% school A is getting, not only they have less resources to do better now, and they have to come up with some like miracle cure that like like to hop around and do it for at forty percent efficiency. Like, I don't know. That doesn't sound reasonable to me. And that, like, I, I guess like I I understand like yes, like school A will be doing much better. The kids who come out of school A will be doing much better. I just don't think, to my mind, it's worth the cost of the kids in school B doing potentially worse or getting the short end of the stick. Huh. Um, yeah, I guess we'd have to test it out. And I think the places where it does work, um, are places that have a much higher educational standard than we do in America. So far, um, where that kind of system does work or where education is more privatized or a lot people are allowed to, where schools are allowed, actually allowed to compete independently. Um, um, yeah, I can't say I know anything about the uh, like I, I'm really deep into this really on like that theoretical level. I don't know anything about the specifics of places where this has been tried to work. So yeah, and, and maybe it wouldn't work in America. And there's probably factors I'm, I'm missing out on, but I'm just I don't think our public education system is very great. This country, mm. like I think it's pretty flawed, um, and it's super bureaucratic. Um, yeah. I don't know. I'm probably going to become a teacher eventually. Probably public education. To be like, yeah. So, Keith, this kind of gets back to where I started this conversation. And this yeah. Pivots, but what does it mean to you for school A to be better than school B? Um, I still don't quite. Is it like they yeah. get higher standardized tests for? Or people are choosing to go there. That's what it means. Like all that means is people are like, oh man, this school is producing results. And that's the way that results are determined. They're determined by whoever the consumer is, like whoever is like, whoever is like the person receiving the benefits. That's the kids and the parents. 
well, okay, you could quickly spin this into a dystopian tale of on some arbitrary metric, school A gets higher funding than school B on year one, and they sure. use that to pump into advertising and branding. And then they sure. just, if the chic of a better school, people choose to sure. go there because of that, and it's a cyclical increase. I mean, I don't know. Like, let's, we can talk about like how, like, Harvard doesn't really have to advertise for itself very much. It's kind of known. People just kind of know, like, this school produces results. Okay. Yeah. But that's also because for years, like, they were able to be highly selective and the people, who had the resources to, who had both the resources and the criteria were going there. Yeah. And they still have, uh, there's, they still are highly selective. So I don't know if that's a bad thing. Like, I don't know if it's dystopian. That's how our market really works. It's like our market, like our, our society works. A lot of it works on, on our, our ability to market our skills. Like if you want to do something privately and start a company, um, and you want to like start your own firm, Michael, you're going to advertise for it and you're going to, you're going to have a small marketing campaign and like, right. You're going to, you're going to, you're going to advocate for your own skills. I don't know if that's a bad thing, Ben, that could be a bad thing. If you're like, if you're kind of like saying things that aren't true and you're claiming false results, like that, that could be a bad thing, but you will soon be outed. Like I'll, I'll go to Michael. Cause I, you know, have a lawsuit and I'll realize Michael is a terrible lawyer. And I'll be like, every, this guy's awful. And I read a Yelp review and. Michael's business won't be doing me that great. But I, I think the key, the difference there is that we're describing, you're describing private funds versus like, if there's a set pool, there's a limit of public funds available. If like, if there's only a hundred, a hundred dollars available for all of the lawyers and mm -hmm. I win one case. And so then they say, okay, of this hundred dollars, Mike gets 60 and the other lawyer gets 40. I'm now better able to to like, just because like, maybe I got lucky, maybe I got whatever, I'm better able to now advocate for myself than this other guy who may be just as talented as I am. And the, that guy's clients, because there's only like, I can only handle so many clients. And so he, that guy's still going to have some clients. That guy's clients are getting an underfunded lawyer. Mm. Sure. Um, so I think that's an interesting point. I think that, uh, I'm not, look, uh, once your school's capacity is met, like, um, they're not going to be able to accept more people. So then the money will have to go to another, another place. Mm. You see what I'm saying? I agree that it's a flawed comparison. And also, um, it does rely on, 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 it still relies on public funding, but what it does cut out is like a ton of the extra costs of centralizing education and like the bureaucracy of that. And I think that is where a lot of our money is, is wasted. So I think there'll be more money to go around. Honestly, um, this is based on no real, uh, you know, deep data driven economic analysis. This is just like me having worked in the federal government for the last five years and like having parents that work as teachers and like seeing where like a lot of the, like just from their perspective, where a lot of the waste is, is on like the money spent on bureaucracy. Um, so yeah, no, I think that's still a great point though. I don't know if like, I don't know if it'll be like, if I, if this school is doing better, this school is necessarily going to be in the, in the shit, you know, they might just be like, okay, like we're not, these teachers here make more, but the teachers here are also better. Like, I, I know, but I guess, yeah, yeah. I mean, this is just, you know, I think we're maybe getting to the point where we're going in circles. 
Yeah. So I just do feel like, yeah, yeah, that, yeah. To me, it sounds like we're setting up school B to be have an uphill battle. Like, yeah, they could still do it, but you're just setting them up to have an uphill battle. Sure. I mean, it's, it's, um, but honestly, like a lot of schools, my dad has taught at a couple schools where like they are not doing well. Um, they're still not doing well. They've been in uphill battles, but there's no incentive for them to actually fight the battle. There's like, yeah, we still get funding. We still get paid. We still get paid the same salary. It's like the army. Like if you're a captain or a lieutenant in the army, like your performance does not affect how much you get paid. So the people that are actually really good at their jobs and like care about soldiering as a, as a virtue are just going to be good wherever they go. They're, they do it because they want to, but the people, it like eliminates a lot of, uh, it one, it, it burns those people out. Cause like, they're like not, they're not getting any monetary incentive for, for being better or doing more work. And, um, it allows people who are, aren't that great to stay in, um, and just keep making a check. Um, I don't think I've though, I'm on board with the idea that like teachers who teach at less than ideal schools are just like, I'm getting my check. So I don't care. I mean, we've already established that the only real reason to go into teaching is like surely the passion of it. So I think that pretty much anybody who's a teacher right now clearly has to love children and and care about their their futures and and hope for something better for them so i don't think that just like oh the only incentive is money and if they're not getting that incentive they're just collecting checks it's a it's a huge incentive money is a huge in incentive and uh um i yeah like i i money is an incentive and if if you offer people more money more competitive people will come into a field like that that'll that i think that will happen I don't know a case where that wouldn't happen. If you were like, hey, everyone, plumbers, if you're a plumber, like your starting salary will be 300000 Like a lot of us would be like, I'm going to fucking trade school right now. Like we would, because it's like, it's interesting to me, at least it's interesting enough. And then two, it's like, that's that's a great salary. It's meaningful work. You're helping people. Like I'd create meaning out of it. I'd make it very meaningful and special. But like I'd, at the end of the day, like I'd be getting paid. And like, I don't think that's a bad thing to want to get to want to get paid um out of the ring well, i don't think the competition is the only way in which you can you can increase that monetary incentive you could also mandate that like like a teacher's salary is $150,000 a year and all of a sudden that's an extremely attractive position um if that could just be like the law to to make it uh to make it that much yeah um, the law is saying that teachers have to get paid, uh, more. It could, in theory. Yeah. I still don't think, I still don't think they'd get paid as much as if it, if it was private or more private, excuse me. I'm not adv advocating for complete privacy where people pay for school themselves, but, um, uh, I, Yeah. I mean, that could be a way I don't like, I'd have to think you, about it. You that. could pass a law that says like, um, teachers make, you know, 1.25 times the national median income or something like I, that. Like the salary could be tied to the national average income and you could set it up so that it is structured to be a desirable amount. I don't know. I don't. You, you might be able to, but I just don't know if, if creating a, um, fake or a false sense like i think your salary should be determined based on like like how much you're 
your skill is demanded if it's outside of like certain very specific public sectors like the military which by necessity has to be like federal like a centralized sort of federal thing under the control of civilian you know civil elected civilian federal officials um I, I don't know if like mandating a salary is a, is a good thing for for anything anyone and i don't think it's optimal i don't think it's optimal for sure i think the optimal salary where like is where like supply and demand intersect Do you not like, do, I feel like you guys have a problem with my, me like making it economic. Um, I get, I get this like, how I like think. For me, it's like you, you mentioned that the, the military is a system, like it's, it's such a fundamental necessity that it needs to be federalized. Hmm. And I think maybe I just view education that way also. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, I, sorry, my mouth's kind of full. Um, I'm kind of wondering if we can, like, take this analogy to the army and see if, like, we could somehow do what you're saying we should do with public schools to the army and, like, we shouldn't save a bunch of money and maybe, like, no, 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 we, we can't. Why? Uh, because you are, like, you need, it needs to be centrally controlled by the federal government. And in a, in a lot of ways, Katie, we do it. Like, so, look, uh, what you're advocating for is, like, we take a bunch of money and we, like, the army, the government, federal government literally does that. One of the most lucrative things you could you could do is go into government contracting. And you contract and the government pays a bidder tons of money. So the biggest winners out of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, I'm talking hundreds of billions of dollars, maybe, maybe trillions, Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman, all these private industries, you know, that bid for government contracts that 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 go on, so they they do that because on its own, the federal government would not be able to build an Abrams tank. The federal government would not be able to build long range missiles. Like we could not do that. You need to introduce free market capitalism in order to be able to have more capabilities. Um, it's why we in World War II we were able to so quickly pivot into a like military industrial. Um, Society, yeah, build, but do the individual of war, do the individual majors, colonels, and generals operate on that same free market system where their salary is is determined no, based on? But no, and they make up those people, Mike. They make up such a tiny percentage of the budget, the personnel. Like the majority of the budget is spent on private military firms like Northrop Grumman, uh, Lockheed Martin, uh, Boeing, Palantir. Vanover, like these all a bunch of smaller companies, companies that I don't know about. Um, like that's where the majority of the money goes and logistics, the biggest logistical kind of, um, machine in the world, probably. Well, yeah. could we then have a system where just like all of the employees of the United States military have a fixed salary? We can have all of the teachers and this of you know employees of the public education department have fixed salaries that are mm -hmm. at a fixed competitive rate, and then yeah, still you we could I mean you, we could have some funding available for uh 
the various companies that produce textbooks and other learning materials so that they are competing, I guess. We can let them compete for contracts. Um, but I don't know that the idea we do. of the direct employees... We do, I know, yeah. Um, but it doesn't seem helpful to me, the idea that the direct employees and the institutions that those employees work at are competing. Why? It's like, it doesn't make sense that... Why? I feel like, why? And one squadron, I don't know how you guys split it up, like one colonel's command is competing against another colonel's command? That's, no, like, because, because Michael, like because if, we, if we did that with our personnel, we would be, we would be, we would have a mercenary army. That's why. And, and the army or the military, it's to provide for the general public defense. And the education the department, department of the army provide for the general public education. But I think I think we should also not have a mercenary system of teachers. It's not mercenary. There's no. There's no. We're not protecting the country. Like the military is. The military is is is. I think is is engaged in an existential sort of project. Where like if we didn't have a monopoly, a centralized monopoly on violence, like we would be open up. We would be open to a lot of. Um, outside violence, external violence from other places. Um, so you see that happening all around the world right now. Um, but we we, I don't think education is is that way. That's like why. So why shouldn't college education also be publicly funded? And right. Okay. So public. let's let me let me dive into that. Um, I think that's where we're reaching our our sort of root disagreement here. Mm -hmm. um, is like I agree with you that defense is a a public necessity. Absolutely, and I would even possibly argue agree that it's like at a higher of a higher degree than education. Um, and I I just also think that at least a minimum level of education is a public necessity, and as such, should not be subject to this mercenary competition type system. And that's why colleges are exempt because they're beyond that minimum level. Um, that's why the college system shouldn't be functioned that way. Um, so if we're, if we're saying that there ought to be a minimum level of education, I think that that is a public necessity and that the purpose of the, just like the purpose of the Department of Defense is to provide for the public defense, the purpose of the Department of Education should be to provide for the public education to that minimum level. I, I, and again, I, 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 um, I just don't think it does effectively, efficiently, um, or fiscally responsibly. Well, I think none of us are saying that the public school system is perfect and there's nothing to improve. We're just saying that going along sort of the route that we're already on and working towards improving it the way it is, like right. Example one being pay teachers more is right. is a better way of approaching fixing it rather than like completely upend it and let a bunch of kids suffer for a while so it's you don't so like when people say pay teachers more like so you're just saying like um increase the federal budget for education put more money into education from a federal federal level but, yeah so you're just talking about like so we're taught what we're talking about is doing what the federal government already does pretty ineffectively which is allocating federal funds like, which is allocating, allocating taxpayer dollars. So, like, I don't think... Yeah, but at a scale so different. Like, the, the issue is, like, yes, it is, it's like paying teachers a certain salary, but that, that salary is not competitive. And that's why the teachers are not of great quality. Like, not, not there's plenty of great teachers, but that's why I have a hard time getting better quality teachers. Is because that salary is not competitive. 
So like, yes, it would be a huge hurdle and it would probably, the government would probably do a terrible inefficient job of it, of course, because they do that with everything. But it's worthwhile, I think, that efficiency, inefficiency on the government level if it okay. raises that standard. I, I see your point. I, and I like the word competition because I think it's necessary for the improvement of things. But I don't think you can simulate competi competition uh, very effectively through through the bureaucracy that is the federal government. Like there's people say that there's like competitive pay scales in 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 GS salaries. There there really there really isn't. Like you could argue that there are, but it's it's not like working in the private industry, um, where where there's like a lot more creativity and openness and freedom. Um, to kind of experiment and and so I, I see your point and I, I I think we want the same like we we envision the same thing a higher like b more educated people better education right I just think the the methodology is different I don't like I believe that people our society should be educated mm -hmm. um so anyway yeah but it, good points like these are like. Yeah, all answers. We'll solve it. We'll solve it together. When, <laughs> when we're, when you're the secretary of education and I'm on bizarre, the, uh, I'm on the financing committee, <laughs> and I reject your proposal. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Exhibit A, philosophy club episode. Da, 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 da. <laughs> no. Yeah. So, anyway. Um. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I I just I it, I don't like it. Just kind of bothers me when it's like we should or the government should say, "Hey, teacher, you're going to get paid this much, and here's your money." It's more like I just want teachers to have. I just want my dad to get paid what he deserves, you know, and what he deserves is going to be decided through a voluntary exchange of his services. With people who want his services, and my dad's a okay. You went to teacher of the year like every year. He works so hard, and if he was op if he was allowed to be in a system where like people paid him for his actual services, he would make a lot of money. And as a tutor, he made a lot of money, like privately. Mm -hmm. It's just like he was just doing that outside of work. He was making very little as a teacher, and after work he would tutor sometimes early in the morning, sometimes late in the day. But growing up as a kid, he taught summer schools and he tutored every year. So he didn't have like the super relaxed teacher life where he was always home because uh, he had three kids and 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 a family to kind of take care of. But anyway, that's kind of I'm just telling you the perspective uh, I'm I'm coming from. No, yeah, that that makes sense. I mean, for the I I also have a lot of public school teachers in my family. Um, I think the biggest issue we both I think are coming up with we our both of our proposals are competition to an extent um i guess your proposal to my mind seems to be teachers are competing with other teachers um whereas mine is that the teaching profession is competing against the market of other professions it's almost like this you're saying teachers are competing for salaries and the standard the person that judges that salary is the federal government so then there's this whole system of bureaucracy that you have to create huge system actually you have to create to standardize how to judge these teachers they do this in the government I have seen these um these uh matrices if you will now what I'm proposing is no parents just choose what school they want to go to 
and they just like write they just like i want this teacher like i want this teacher and this teacher can just be like i do private lectures as well and parents will be like oh my gosh like i want to i want this guy like and th that would create more of i think that would be like way less bureaucratic way less wasteful um we wouldn't have like you would create you would create whole new professions to judge what teacher is better than another teacher is that thing? Is that so I'm, saying, I'm not doing, I'm not having teachers where some teachers are making more money than other teachers. I don't think necessarily. No, okay. I think I'm. I'm thinking. What I'm saying is that the teaching profession, if we offer a baseline salary that is by definition competitive, possibly by statute, competitive, um, then it makes the field as a whole much more enticing, and then you can be much more selective as to who you let into the field. Right. Um. Interesting. Yeah, I, I, I see what you're saying. I just, um, I don't know if it would be as competitive. And the best example I could give, Logan might get pissed at me for this, but there's, there's a couple of special operations units within the army. Uh, special forces is one of them. Uh, uh, Ranger regiment is another one, right? If you go into special forces, uh, you change your entire like army DNA in terms of like what your branches, you are now an 18 series. You are a special forces personnel. If you go into Ranger regiment, you're a Ranger, but you're still your branch. You're still your base branch and you can get kicked out at any time. You can get kicked out for, for failing a drug test. You can get kicked out for, for failing a fitness standard. You can get kicked out for a number of reasons. And you actually have to meet, you have to actually like compete to come in again and stay in. Like you have to, you have to, it's, they they are by far like from a baseline level their baseline is ex way higher than the sf guys so the if you chose an average regiment dude and an average sf dude the average regiment dude would outperform him in most capacities now a good sf team is fantastic because that good sf team has this microculture where they've like fostered this thing but the system that that and this comes from actual green brace that are my friends they fostered this system where nothing they are turned into green berets and they get this accolade and they must a lot of them can't even run two miles and because they're not incentivized to there's no incentive to to be able to do well because you can't lose your green beret like you can't lose your thing a lot of gs workers i worked with very similar um a lot of loot like that's just kind of the nature of like federalizing a job or a profession you create a lot of complacency i don't actually think it makes it that's because the military, I think, is not subject to the same competitive employment structure as many other government roles. Teachers in this in this scenario we're describing would still be subject to that same competitive. If there's like a better teacher who comes along, if a school's hiring forty teachers and uh, there's some some up and coming, you know, someone's got a fantastic resume transferring from some other school, and you have been dropping the ball, you can be fired. Yeah, so you're saying this is what I'm saying. You're saying that the that the system decides which teacher is better. I'm saying that the parents and the students decide which teacher is better. And honestly, honestly, like if I was at a school and the school was like this teacher is the best teacher, if my high school was like this teacher is the best teacher, I'd be like, no, I think the students know better who the best teacher is. You know, well, I think that in what Michael's describing, the parents and students do decide because. If the parents are complaining, hey, my kid is saying that they're watching YouTube videos 
all day long, every day they come into this class. My kid is saying they're not learning Spanish. How many times did I make that exact complaint to my parent? Like mm -hmm. if those things are coming up, that's going to be a conversation with the school and that's going to be what reflects on whether you keep a teacher or not. That's still going to exist. What, why does there have to be a layer, another arbiter in between the parents and the decision that that teacher shouldn't be there? The arbiter here is, is the principal. The principal. The school principal. The school principal who gets who gets a resume on their desk. They say, I've got $120,000 salary to hand out. I can give it to this resume that looks fantastic. Or I can give it to this teacher who everyone's complaining that their kids aren't learning. Like, okay. So the, the school basically decides. So the power is still, I think, in the parents' hands just as much. It's just not literally money they're handing over. It's reviews, basically. And the issue is in this system, you're not taking money away from one school to give it to another. Right. Okay. Interesting. I think that could, I think that could, that could, that, that, that would certainly be better <laughs> than what we have now. Yeah. Yeah. But it would be costly. It would be, it would be costly on the, on the terms of taxes and it would probably be inefficient. So all, if those yeah. are huge hangups for you, then that you may see yeah. problems with it. But like, uh, with it already increasing fundamentally flawed. Yeah. Well, I, yeah. No. Yeah. So like, yeah, from a everything is about, everything is about trade-offs, right? Like if you pay more for one thing, you're taking money away from something else. You can't just like, we don't just produce money. We do actually just print money. We do actually, sorry. But like it makes our buying power less. Like it makes us weaker economically. Um, so, so yeah, th that's the, I guess that's the, my, that's my biggest problem with it. And I guess, and I think, I just think the other system would be more competitive and I, I like the concept of volatility. <laughs> Athens, ancient Athens, volatility, ancient city-states, volatility, intellectual volatility. You know, I, I think it's uh, a, a tried and true way of, of producing uh, interesting shit. Yeah. Ben, do you have any thoughts on this? Yeah, so I kind of started this problem. I'm less interested in the how we achieve it. I'm more interested in what we are trying to achieve. So you are talking about like, how do we allocate money such that we get the best schools? I'm trying to figure out what makes a school the best. And I'm not convinced by Akib's argument that it's just who chooses it the most. Mm -hmm. I think there's some other underlying... I mean, we sort of mentioned it. It's like the best school is the school that generates the best students. I'm trying to figure out what makes the best students the best students. Is it that they know the most facts or that they are the best problem solvers or that they are the best socialized? So that's kind of like how I started this problem. I don't have a huge opinion on the economics of it. <laughs> what if it's that they are the best... Uh, um, uh, like uh, one metric schools use is like the, their like ability to get a job afterwards. Colleges use that, right? Like how quickly they gained a job and what the salary was. I'm not saying that's a, the best metric. That is a metric like colleges have proposed and used. They actually publish them often. Um, our students, our like law students earn a median salary of this much before bonuses, you know, like they'll, they'll, they'll actually publish that. And that is a reason people choose to go to these certain schools because they want that kind of result. Um, that's I think, interesting. Like, I want Mike's opinion on this. Do you think 
it is best for a law school to generate lawyers that make the most, or would we rather live in a society where lawyers like went to nonprofits and did good causes and that's what got advertised? So law schools kind of do advertise on those two different branches. Um, there's like, there are some people who go into law because they want to uh, make a shitload of money. Um, and there are certain schools that are frankly better for that than others. And there are, and then some people who go into law school because they want to work in public service. Um, and there are certain schools. So like a lot of school, there are some schools that really advertise their, um, like we've got a pro bono practicum. We've got like a, we, we work with local public this, that, and the other, and you'll get to work on this kind of issue. You get to work in like this social justice, you know, workshop sort of thing. Um, a lot, some schools really push that stuff and some schools really push, um, our graduates median salary is, you know, $120,000 a year, um, like, or like, you know, whatever it is. Um, and so to some extent, yeah, different law schools are prioritizing these different things. You have a sense of what the most prestigious law schools, which approach they're taking? Yeah, uh, they take the money approach. And and even the ones that do take the public service approach, like most of the students that go into these top tier law schools who have public ideas of public service, very few of them go into go into public service or into public interest law because the monetary incentive isn't there. And that's just how humans behave. Like they, one, they get pants because they're in a massive amount of debt. And even the ones that can, that are not in a massive amount of debt, they're usually like, oh man, I have not made any money or saved anything for the last three years. I don't want to like build something. I don't want to make money. Uh, that's people. true. And, and I will say a lot of people that do go into federal clerkships or public interests, they go into pre prestigious public interest firms or prestigious clerkships, and then they jump right into corporate law. And then they go back to public education and then they go to corporate law. And there's a bad, and I have buddies who've worked at Lincoln Lab and they'll tell me, yeah, like people just go work at NASA so, so that like they can say that they did and put it on their resume. Like they'll go to NASA for a year and just be like, yeah, I worked at NASA. But like, are they actually incentivized to work for NASA? Like they're incentivized to get the name on the resume so that it can increase their bargaining power later on in their career. Yeah. That speaks to um, a big part of law school. There's like a culture of competition and prestige um that is extremely prevalent at law school um and in part that's because almost all if not all law schools function um to the extent where they 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 you are competing against your fellow students like everything is graded on the curve um and so that that competition is kind of built in to the education and then there's like, I was actually talking to my roommate because my roommate is very interested in going into public defense. Um, he's a year out of me in law school. And he was telling me that uh, a friend of his was looking at summer jobs that would likely turn into a real job after law school and had a choice between two different pretty prestigious firms. Um, but one of them was pretty known to like have some shady dealings going on. Like, like back in the day, they like helped to overturn some like Central American governments and um, like, like, like some pretty shady stuff. And like, and even to this day, like even now they're still involved in some shady stuff. Um, but they have a better reputation for prestige. And he was saying his friend was like, I might go to this more prestigious one, even though like the pay was not only the same. And even in terms of like on his resume, like he, he's already at such a high point, like it's not helping much that much more to go to one or the other. 
but the the influence of prestige is so heavy here that um, it factors in a lot. So especially like so if if some of these people who are going to Harvard Law School who have public interest aspirations have that beat out of them by law school. I've even seen that here. Like I'm not at a Harvard Law School by any stretch, but um, but I've seen that here to some extent. Even. Yeah. Yeah, maybe this whole conversation just boils down to me lamenting human nature and wishing there were more like Katie Minis in the world using their free time to chart out random history rabbit holes. Um, yeah, this is heavy hitting stuff. I love YouTube. So that's how you know I'm doing really great research. I'm really pushing the human race forward. Um, uh, my incentive for my job is definitely not monetary. A huge incentive for my job is literally, I have so much free time to read. Great. Um, I, I think that most people, given the right amount of time and the right exposure, would would enjoy learning. It, I think that it probably is kind of the natural state of humans to be curious and to be excited by knowledge. But I think that we're beaten out of us by the demands of like everyday life and lack of time. And even when you do have the time, it's like, oh man, I just worked nine to five and then I took care of my kids. Last thing I would want to do in that scenario is like read a difficult anthropology book. Like that does not sound fun. At that point, it's like just relax. So I do think that human nature actually is kind of tending towards the more curious. I agree. And I think that um, part of the reason oh, maybe a lot of people don't engage in their education, like maybe part of the reason a lot of people in high school didn't join the philosophy club um, or or other, you know, similar clubs that may have been more suited to their various aptitudes, if we want to circle back to that, um, is because we view education as a certification to aid you in your career. Um, and so like, like how many times have you heard, like, why do I need to learn calculus? I'm never going to use this in X field. Like, and it's because like, the framework of education as a route to a career is so prevalent um, that education for its own sake is less obvious for a lot of people, I think. Right. I also think that specifically for philosophy club, people get were hindered by this thought that like, I don't know what, like, I don't know how to think that way. That's not me. Like, like Sam said the other day, uh, I am so not inclined to think like, Yes, you are. He's a smart guy. Well, like, it was such a funny thing to say. You totally are. You're just like, you don't realize that you're thinking that way all the time. Every, pretty much everybody is. And if they're not, it's not because they don't have the ability or something. It's just like, you never sat down and do it before, you know? So I think that's why some high school, I, would, oh, I wouldn't do that. I think I, I agree with you, Katie. I think learning is like something most humans are curious. It's part of human nature. I don't think... I don't think everyone is as interested in ideas and concepts as you are, or as Michael is, or as Ben is, hmm. or, or me kind of, but I don't think people are like as interested and they don't want to be, and that's okay. I don't know if everyone needs to be in as interested in like concepts like that. I think that's also kind of the piece that I say about exposure is that I think like I said, I didn't care about history until I started seeing historical sites. And then I was like, whoa, that's real. Like, what's, that's where that happened and that person was there. Like, whoa. And I think that most people will 
have some kind of trigger that could ignite something. Or or also think that people who say themselves that they don't care to read or whatever, they don't like to think, as Sam said, which is so silly. Um, I think they just don't realize that what they already do is philosophy. Like what they already think about is philosophy. Anybody who has like a political opinion thinks about philosophy to some extent. Whether or not they like explain that or like call it that is different. So I think people are interested in ideas. They, maybe that I don't agree with them, but I think everybody is. And like, it's just a matter of like how we talk about it. Maybe. Uh, up to a keep's point though, I think there are, there's, there's some people who you'll, you'll hear say like, I don't pay attention to politics. I've got no interest in it. Um, there's some people who are, maybe I'm oversimplifying here, but like who are content to like go through, like go to work and come home and watch TV and they don't want to have to like dig deeper into anything. And that I don't, I agree that I don't think there's just anything wrong with that. Yeah, It's just not the way I approach life. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think there's anything wrong with it. I think there's like just different people have different temperaments. Um, and I think Katie, you've always had a temperament where you're curious about like things. Um, some people are not as curious as you about like ideas. I, I don't think it's embarrassing me on the podcast right now. <laughs> I'm serious. I don't think it's, and I've said this to you before. I don't think many like flight attendants are sitting there spending their free time reading. Or would you say that's not common? Do you, would you say all of them like had all this free time and now they're traveling and they're watching history videos on YouTube? But I don't think they are, Katie. No, they're pretty they're like Andy Crush. Trust me. <laughs> yeah. Well, but I, it, sorry. <laughs> I, I think it's a beautiful way to try to like, I think what the world needs to to inspire when people like teachers the way they inspire students is that they show you how they were inspired and so like being somebody who comes alive through ideas and philosophy and history is important because it makes other people excited about those things the classes i was most excited in were the classes where the teachers were most excited i didn't have to care about the subject necessarily but if the teacher was excited about statistics i'd be like fuck yeah statistics because this teacher had this weird energy about it um so, yeah, I don't know. I had some enthusiastic Spanish teachers, and I never liked those classes. So, oh, okay, never mind. <laughs> but, but I think broadly speaking, you're right, though. <laughs> no, sorry, that's just putting a dick. <laughs> uh, <laughs> almost sounds like you guys are talking about good vibes. <laughs> nice. No, like I'm not even kidding. Like this is exactly the kind of stuff he was talking about when he talked about good vibes. It's like that you come out of school having lit that passion for learning. Yeah, and that takes special special kinds of. It's rare, but like there's teachers. We've all had those teachers and those experiences. Um, and so then, I guess Ben, to circle back, your question was then: if that goal now we finally kind of established it to be to ignite this passion for learning, is that how can we better structure the actual school system to ignite a passion for learning? Amongst the other things, like. I still do think there's some baseline of facts that regardless of whether or not you're passionate, you should know them. And I could be wrong here, but it would seem to me fundamentally strange if like I met someone in modern day America who didn't know World War II happened. Like, I don't think that knowledge is actually useful in 90% of people's day-to-day -day life, but it would be weird to me to interact with someone who just thought like we were always a peaceful society. That's like, so there's this, um, my dad used to tell me the story, uh, we, his, his parents used to have this like little cabin way up in the mountains of North Carolina. 
And when I, even when I was growing up, we would go there on like weekends and stuff sometimes. But my dad just told me the story when he was a kid going there, there was this local guy, um, was kind of way out in the booties, um, who like ran a, like basically convenience store and like just kind of did that and lived his life in the mountains and like played music sometimes and things like that. And this guy could not read. Um, this guy did not know how to read. Um, and he got through life fine, not knowing how to read. That said, I still kind of think everyone ought to know how to read. Uh, I think if we're setting up a system, uh, like a, a public education system for everyone to have it at their, you know, to have available to them, it should have a, as a minimum standard that they learn how to read. I agree. <laughs> Literacy is good, is all we can all agree. I think so far. <laughs> Akib, is literacy good? Wait, what was that? Do you agree <laughs> literacy is good? Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, I'm kidding. I'm totally, I'm totally kidding. No, yeah, I, I, uh, yeah, I think it's, it's good. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, I agree it's good. So... Okay, well, I don't know if we've made any real progress in this conversation. No, we might have gone like all the way around the bend and back, uh, but but it was it was interesting. Or it's not looking. That's the point. Was out with progress. progress. Yeah, AFED. through whatever conceptualization you think a good education looks like, whatever that means to us each individually. Do you think a system of education designed to accommodate that goal would look very similar to what we have? So like Akib, if you got your perfect free market system, would the best schools resemble anything like what we currently have? No. Uh, would the best schools resemble what we have now? Like the, like the high schools we went to, would they resemble in any way, shape or form whatever an ideal school would look like? Um, the high schools is so wait can you I'm sorry I'm slow can you ask that question one more time yeah so what I'm kind of trying to get at is each of us individually would our ideal system of education how similar would that look to what we currently have um I think it would look very different than what we currently have. In what ways on the ground in the classroom do you think it looks different? Um, I feel like uh, there would be more, there would just be a higher volume of engaged teachers. Um, and I think more parents would be Parents would be more interested in education too, their kids' education. If they're actively, if you give people, if you give people autonomy and choice, they're always more like, um, engaged. So even parents who normally wouldn't be interested in like the school would be now because they had to have, like, they had to choose it. Um, so yeah, maybe. That would be one way. And I, I just think the quality of, of teaching would be higher. The teachers would be more qualified in general. There'd be more higher qualified teachers. 
Michael, Katie, that, do you have any changes you would make? I think that every time a kid feels inspired or excited in their classroom, they should be able to give their teacher a $20 bill. And then that way, their teacher will be inspiring all the time. This is like kind of a funny tangent. <laughs> I'm just words. <laughs> just joking. Please don't get That's good. That's good. No, we should. We should. I'll that was funny. Did you laugh? No, I did. I chuckled. Sorry. I was hammering a nail in my bookshelf as you said that. <laughs> no, yeah, like. I'm just. just <laughs> that one has gotten a little keep. Um, I think for me, your question, what it would look like in my mind. I think maybe early childhood education would be a little bit more like Montessori style. <laughs> like, like again, kind of hands-on, more active. Um, I think there's a little bit more uh, autonomy built into that system. As far as I know it, I'm not like super well-versed in this, but I think early childhood education would look pretty different. Um, but to be honest, high school, I feel like it was pretty good. Like it prepared me for what I needed to be ready for in college. I had some autonomy and some choice in my classes. I did some classes that I really enjoyed and really loved. Um, but I also like hit the basics. So to be honest, high school, I feel like was fine. Like good, you know, I would love to see more like, like home economics classes or something sure. or like tax preparation classes or something that's more along the like day-to-day -day reality help. Um, I think that's would be more useful to like add back into curriculums, I guess. But otherwise, I don't feel like it's that far off. Michael? Yeah, I... Uh, again, I think that the school that Ben, you, Katie, and I went to was an unusually um, good school, potentially, um, in that we had a lot of opportunities and options. Like, there was a lot of AP classes available in a lot of different directions. There was language APs. There was even, there was an AP music class. There were science APs. There was AP psychology. Um, we had the the governor's school available if you had a particular aptitude for math or science. Um, there was also the, like the, the, the I, I don't remember the name of it because I wasn't, this wasn't the direction of my aptitude, but there was like the kind of tech school where they had like the auto body and they had right. cosmetology um, and they had things like that. So I do think our high school was pretty good at um, have giving us options while still maintaining a core curriculum of that was required for everyone. And I think I basically agree with that. I think I would not change our, my ideal system would look very similar to the one that we all came through. Um, what I would change, and this is maybe me coming from the, and it's 100% definitely me coming from a philosopher philosophy standpoint. Um, is I think I would like to see more skepticism baked into the curriculum, um, more like of a presenting of different, different perspectives on an issue, um, rather than like, and I, again, I don't know exactly what that would look like in practice necessarily. Um, but the idea of like, here's a way we can look at this event. Here's another way we can look at this event. Um, but even just like uh, something sort of like that, I think would be helpful in uh reducing some amount of like dogmatism but i don't know that's again that's uh, definitely the, the philosopher bias in me though 
No, I couldn't agree more. That's a really, really good point. Kind of like a shockingly optimistic place to end on so things aren't actually that bad. Ben, what, what, would you change anything, Ben? What does your ideal system look like? Yeah, so there are a couple of ideas that are very inchoate for me. And I don't even know how best to articulate them. So one thing that strikes me as odd is that I think our lecture system is weird. So the fact that uh, a teacher teaches basically the exact same lecture year after year in an era where we have technology, where like we could record the best calculus lecturer giving calculus lectures and distribute that to everyone somehow. That seems, there seems like there's something there to make that a better system. I don't know quite what that is. And then the other idea is like the way we chunk learning doesn't align with how we learn things long-term. So like there's very good research that if you want to learn something and have that stick for life, you have to space it out in a spaced repetition style. Where in, in our current system, we like teach a semester of a topic and then you never reference it again. So obviously you're going to forget it. So some other system where like knowledge is chunked over a longer period of time and where we can expose students to the best version of the teaching material. I would experiment with those, but I don't know. There's nothing inclusive there. I don't know that I agree with your position that there is like a best calculus lecture. Um, I think that one of the benefits of direct interpersonal teaching is that like a teacher can play to the various strengths and personalities of their students. Um, but how but often does that happen though? It may not happen often, but I think each of the instances that we laid out of a time when a teacher like impacted us um, was in a specific example of that. And I think that that sort of thing cannot happen if you have recorded lectures happening that you're learning from. Yeah. So the, so the, where I saw this presented, the guy was hypothesizing about changing the role of teacher to be a motivator instead. So like the actual material is being delivered by the quote unquote best teacher. And then you have some sort of tutor intermingling with the students to motivate them and help them along and to, to modify the material to that student's needs. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know what, how that would be implemented but it, it's something that strikes me as odd. Yeah, that's interesting. And to get back to Akib's whole point about competition, like the idea that there has to be the best teacher only serving a very small class of students, that is like fundamental in the competitive ideal of schools, is that some students will be even better teachers than others. And I don't know, I'm a techno-optimist in the era of technology. I don't see why that has to be the case. I really like that, Ben. I really, I really, I really do. Um, I think it takes out the, the concept of the dialectic. So like you're right in a calculus lecture, uh, but if there's an exceptionally bright student who started understanding proofs very early on, like intuitively and had a question about them, like he wouldn't really be able to engage with that kind of mind. Um, and I think there's a beautiful thing that happens when like a teacher is able to engage with a very engaged and intelligent and bright student. Um, so you do lose that aspect, but I, I, I do think like things like Khan Academy, for example, when it came out back in like 2009, 10, like kind of started that revolution a little bit mm -hmm. where like I was talking to Matt Aioli 
he works in my company. He's our financial modeler. He was in investment banking for 20 years. Very neat kind of dude. Uh, I really like him. Uh, he has like three degrees. He has two degrees in engineering and a degree in his MBA from NYU, which is really quiet, very intelligent um, guy. I set up a weekly meeting with him just to talk to him, to learn about just anything because he's just such a wealth of knowledge. And I was like, Matt, do you think I should go get an MBA? And he was like, why would you want to go get an MBA? And I was like, I don't know, learn about finance. And he was like, Akib, like you could learn more about finance from like 10 YouTube videos than most MBA students would in an MBA. Um, so like, don't do that for that. Yeah, so I think it, it is. Yeah, no, fuck you, MBAs. No, no, I think the importance of an MBA is that's a whole different conversation. People get MBAs for different reasons, but, but like that access to knowledge is now like pretty awesome. Whereas when he came into investment banking, there's a huge barrier. Like you either had to have a degree or you had to have like a mentor. And like he, he saw other investment bankers as like these like people who were like wizards who had the secret knowledge. He quickly realized there was a lot of subterfuge and they didn't have all the secret knowledge. But anyway, um, he didn't have YouTube. Uh, yeah. Okay, cool. This was a very interesting talk on education. Um, thanks, guys. Any final thoughts? We have an official philosophy club outro. Uh, we've had we have some like pre-recorded ones. <laughs> no official signing off message. Come up with one for us, Ben. Yeah. Let me ask ChatGPT. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, dang! I didn't turn on the AI companion. We could have asked it to uh, to sign off for us. Mm, can you turn it on now? Let's try it. Yeah, but it, wait, hold on. It was. It it only starts reading. I think when we when we turn it on. So what was the thing Sam Bowler said that we found so, or Sam said that we found so weird? Uh, that he doesn't. He's the type of person who doesn't like to think in any capacity. I think that's what. All right. This has been Philosophy Club. Be the kind of person that likes to think in any capacity. Any any capacity. Y'all next time. Thank you for joining our discussions today. We hope you're leaving with more questions and answers. This episode was produced by our friend Sam Roller. We'll catch you at the next Philosophy Club.